Welcome back to another listener Q&A where I read and respond to questions submitted by our ultra supporter members of the YouTube channel. I'm going to get right to it today. And some of these questions were very long and very detailed. I'm going to summarize them just for the sake of kind of getting to the heart of the matter. But I really appreciate all the thought and detail that our ultra supporters put into these questions. The more detail you give, the better answer I can give. So Rianne Durak wants to know how to stop herself from dissociating. I'm going to give just kind of a broad overview of how we do that. And then I'm going to give two of many specific techniques that a person could theoretically use to stop dissociating. If you're not familiar with this terminology, just really quick, dissociation refers to a cognitive or a brain process where our limbic system, which is kind of our emotional survival memory oriented system, takes over primary functioning from our frontal lobes, which is a part of our brain that's more based on logic and reasoning and kind of human mental abilities and things like that. So when we're dissociating, this more primitive, more survival-oriented part of our brain takes over and we lose access to some of the abilities that we normally have when we're, there could be a lot of terms for, for like being frontal lobe driven. A lot of people would call it like fully present during your adult brain or something along those lines. But when you're dissociating, you have less ability to focus, concentrate, remember, um, interact socially in more like complex, nuanced ways, think critically, plan long-term, inhibit behaviors, regulate emotions, orient to person, place, and time, et cetera. So dissociation, basically, if we're trying to get out of dissociation, we're trying to trigger or engage an antagonistic brain process, meaning your brain is adaptive and flexible, and it's always going to be in the mode it thinks you need it to be in based on what's happening around you. So the two main reasons we get into dissociation are either understimulation or overstimulation. So if our frontal lobes aren't being used at all, like just there's nothing happening and we're really just kind of bored or disengaged, that can trigger dissociation. Being really stressed out or scared or angry can also trigger dissociation because that can get us more into a fight or flight state. So that's kind of the overview and the framework. Two relatively quick and easy strategies you can use to try to exit a dissociative state if you find yourself in one. And I know that that here's the underlying difficulty to everything. Using a technique to get out of a dissociative state requires you to be aware that you're in a dissociative state and being aware that you're in a dissociative state requires some level of frontal lobe engagement. So this is a hard thing to do and, and probably nothing I can teach anyone is going to work every time. But two of my favorite interventions to use, one involves something called the five core organizers. So the five core organizers are the five different ways that we take in information from the world. And they are thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, movement or movement urges, and your five senses. So all five of those processes, excuse me, are running 24-7, constantly taking in information. Most of us tend to be kind of primarily oriented to one of those five, meaning we kind of filter the other four through that main one. And the majority of people are thought driven. Most of us experience the world through narrative thought. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there are many advantages to that. But being thought driven does somewhat prime you for experiencing higher degrees of dissociation, because your thoughts are the only one of the five core organizers that can be oriented to past, present or future. And you might notice that you're more prone to dissociation when you're either spending a lot of time thinking about things that have happened in the past or thinking and probably worrying about things that may happen in the future. So if you can simply work on consciously and intentionally tuning into and being more aware of 
your emotions. So what are you feeling emotionally right now in this moment? Even if it's about the past or the future, an emotion is a present moment sensation. What are you feeling in your body? Where do you notice tension? Where do you notice relaxation? Do you notice heat? Do you notice cold? Even it, these are kind of cliche, I know, but like, you know, I'm sitting in a chair right now, right? And until this, until the moment when I said I'm sitting in a chair, I had no awareness whatsoever of the sensation of my legs on the chair because I was purely focused on what I was saying to you. But as soon as I said, I'm sitting in a chair, felt it. And it, it did it again just now. And like two seconds later, it goes away. So when you tune into present moment sensations, it helps you get out of associative states. Um, tuning into sensory information is a great one too. So, you know, obviously your five senses, right? That sight, touch, taste, sound, and smell. Those are a great way to get back into the present moment. And getting back into the present moment typically has the added benefit of reducing dissociation and making you more focused on the here and the now. The second thing, and this is not a specific technique, this is a really broad category of techniques, essentially. But the second thing I like to encourage people to do to get out of dissociative states is to try and engage a task that requires your frontal lobes. I'll give you a few examples of that. Um, orienting exercises are a great example. So if you simply look around the room you're in and name objects, colors, or people, if there's other people in the room, that is all present moment stimuli. That is all information you only have access to in the here and the now. And so when you even try to do that, it's, it's not that naming those things in and of themselves really does anything. It's the fact that you're trying to engage a process in your mind that only your frontal lobes can do. And most of the time when you try to do that, your brain will notice that and it will redirect some of the resources that are getting kind of bunched up in your limbic system back up to the front. And that also helps you get out of dissociative episodes. Um, another thing that would fall into that category would be like logic puzzles. If you do like Sudoku or a word find or math, I know people don't really do math for fun. Well, some people probably do. I shouldn't be judgy about that. Um, but basically trying to do something that only that part of your brain can do will help get that part of your brain back online. So like I said, those are two of you know, hundreds of techniques that are designed to help with dissociation. Those are two of my favorites because they're fairly simple to explain, pretty easy to do, and they don't require any like special knowledge or tools or anything like that. So I hope that those are helpful. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Bubble Girl wants to know, how does she decouple her sense of self from what others think of her? Again, there's, I could give you, my mind's going a hundred different directions right now. I don't know why I feel like I always choose two. Three feels like too many. One doesn't feel like enough because if I give you one, what if you don't like it, right? Um, so I'm going to give you two tools that help reorient you to your sense of self as defined by you, not as defined by others. One is a visual boundaries exercise. So our boundaries are not just physical, right? Our boundaries are not just, you know, here's my bubble and, and don't come too close to me. Our boundaries are also about our truths, our beliefs, our values, how we see the world. And when we're around a lot of other people who don't share our values and the way you see yourself, your perception of like, who am I? And what does that mean? That's a value. That's a belief. It's not something that can be, you know, for the most part, like factually proven or disproven. So when you're around people who don't share your values, it can become very, very difficult to hold on to your values because essentially you feel like this pressure or this um, like, like, well, pressure. I don't know. There's not really another word for that. Um, to think the way we think and feel the way we feel and see what we see, including how we see you. I like to visualize my boundaries as being like 
property boundary, right? So I live in a neighborhood. And so on. there's no house behind me. To my left and to my right are other homes. And we have property boundaries, meaning there's a pretty clearly defined area where my yard ends and their line, their yard begins. I like to view the way I see the world, you know, my truth, my values, my beliefs, et cetera, as also existing essentially within a property boundary. And my neighbors, whoever, and, and, and my neighbors in, in your situation is just whoever's around you at any given time, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, whatever, they can look at your property. They don't actually have the authority to make changes to it. And so when someone says to you like, hey, I don't think you're doing a good job at XYZ, that would be functionally equivalent to my neighbor coming up to my property boundary and saying, hey, I don't think your grass is green enough. And what I should do when that happens is I should look at my yard and I should consider without immediately accepting, I should consider the words he has said to me as a theory. So I like to put that in front of it. Like people don't usually say things like that, right? But what, what someone's actually saying to you, because these aren't factual things is I believe, or I feel, or I think that your yard is not green enough. I think you aren't doing a good enough job at this thing. They, they're going to say it like it's a fact, but it's not. It's their opinion. So I mentally reframe it as that. And then I fact check their theory against my reality. So you say you don't think my grass is green enough. I look at my yard. My yard's really green. And that's not a metaphor. It is. I'm a yard guy. So if I don't feel that that idea has validity, I will not accept it into my property boundary. I, uh, he cannot come into my yard. Well, I mean, he could, but he'd get like arrested or something. He can't just come in and like start spreading fertilizer on my yard. It belongs to me. All he can do is advise me on what he thinks I should do with it. And I can choose to take that advisement or I can choose to not take that advisement. Excuse me. So I like to visualize that. And that's technique number one. Technique number two, this one's a little more involved. This one's more proactive, but this can be a really powerful technique. We did this in intensive outpatient group recently. I encourage people to essentially write a job description for themselves. Like, what does it mean to be me? If I had to train someone else to be me and live my life, what would they have to learn how to do? And those things that you write in your description of you, and I know it could be really long, try to keep it to a page just for the sake of like not being perfectionistic about it. Those are your standards that you're measuring yourself by. Other people don't get to tell you the standards for being you. They may tell you the standards for certain things, right? A, a teacher can tell you their standards for a paper. A coach can tell you their standards for athletic performance. And if you want to participate in those activities, you do have to, you know, consider performing up to their expectations. But when it comes to your life as a whole, big picture, the only person who actually knows what you're trying to do is you. And so the only person that can even set those criteria, let alone know if you're living up to them or not, is you. So if you can clearly define, here's what I'm trying to do, here's what I want my life to be about. If you feel like you're living up to that, it doesn't really matter what anyone else says. I'll give you a practical example of that too. Um, so I'm a dad and one of my children is my son. He's a boy and he's 11 years old. He is not currently in any organized sports. And when I talk to other dads, which I honestly don't do that often, sometimes they have a reaction to that. There, there's a lot of dads out there, at least here in America, who basically treat organized sports, especially for boys, as like a requirement. Like if you're a dad and you have a boy, and the boy is not in sports, you're a bad dad. I do not align with that. 
I think physical activity is important for health and brain development. I don't think it has to come in the form of organized team sports. I myself did not generally enjoy organized team sports. My son doesn't appear to either. He's very physically active, spends like an hour a day on the trampoline. When the weather's nice out, he'll spend four hours a day hiking in the forest and making maps and like befriending woodland creatures and stuff. He's plenty physically active. He doesn't need to do sports. But if I let other people define what it means to be me or define what it means to, to be a dad, I'm going to feel like I'm failing because I'm not doing it the way a lot of people think it should be done. So the only way I can maintain my sense of whether or not I'm doing a good job is if I adhere to my own definition and not the definitions of those around me. In order to do that, you have to define what it means to be you and what you're trying to be. That's kind of long-winded. I hope that made sense. Next question. We have uh, JDBabes33. She just wants to know how the new practice is going. That's a nice, well... I was gonna say, I was gonna say that's a lighthearted question. It's actually kind of not. I bet you wanted it to be. Um, for the most part, it's going great. I did this opening my own practice in a, a suboptimal time frame. Let's say um, I did this in a much more condensed period of time than what it's probably meant to be done in. That's a whole other story in and of itself. It's going great but I constantly feel like I'm behind because there's always a million things to do. And I wanted to be responsible for everything because I didn't like how other people were doing everything when I worked for an organization. And, and so I, I'm responsible for all those things now. And I love that. That's what I wanted. That was the goal because frankly, I felt like I could do it better than they were. And I think I am, but oh my gosh, it is a lot. And this week in particular, I'll be honest, has been a challenge. The biggest challenge I'm facing right now is credentialing with insurance companies. Um, that normally takes like four months. And I started the process three weeks before I opened this practice. I know, I know. It's There's a whole other story that I might tell on here eventually around that. But here's the short version. Um, I'm credentialed with some insurance companies, but not all, including I'm not currently credentialed with Medicaid. Uh, I will be. Like, it's, it's just a matter of time. Everything, I'm just waiting. It's all in process. My caseload is primarily Medicaid. Um, and I only recently got credentialed with Wellmark and I just submitted billing claims. What I'm getting at here is so far, the North Star Psychological Center in almost two months of operation has made $0. Actually, we're negative because it's not free to, to run this place. Um, so it's been financially not great. That will change. Like it's it's gonna be great. Um but it's, yeah, I've been working for free for the last two months. And that's that's hard to do. Um, thank goodness for, honestly, for you guys and for YouTube and, and podcast and, and book sales, because that's been my only income for the past two months. Um, and that's been the only thing paying the bills. And it's not, I can't, I can't make that work forever. It's okay for now. Um, it's going to work out. As far as like the actual practice operations, though, seeing people running groups, uh, hiring people, training people, supervising people. Uh, oh, I just love it. Our sign, I posted it on Instagram. Finally got the sign um, for the front desk area the other day. Uh, I I love this. It's just, I'm in kind of a difficult phase right now. Once I get through this, it's going to be fantastic. All right. A few more quick ones here. I am uh, not being as efficient with my time as I wanted to. Um, Song Soon Blue, I think. Song Sung Blue, sorry, I'm, that's a new name to me, wants to know how she can manage uh, depressive episodes when being a solo parent of small children. And so I just want to acknowledge right away, 
Um, I think that's one of the hardest things a person can do. I can't, well, I, and I say that very theoretically because I've, I've, I've not solo parented for a period of more than a few hours. Um, I can only, I really can't imagine what that's like. So I, I just want to acknowledge right away. I, I cannot imagine what it's like to be a solo parent. Parenting's hard when there's two of you. Like it's really hard when there's two of you. I just, I, I don't even have a sense of how difficult that would be. From your question, I gathered that you're probably experiencing a lot of sensory overstimulation from the way you define things. And so I think I would primarily be thinking of sensory resources in your case, things like semi-noise canceling headphones, for example. I know you don't want full, full noise canceling because you have to be able to hear your kids, but kids are loud and you don't need to be able to hear them at full volume, right? So anything that decreases sensory overstimulation can be helpful. I think headphones could be helpful. And this might sound goofy, but I know a lot of kids, um, I don't think you specified how old your kids are, but I think you said little. Kids tend to be very touchy and grabby. And that can be really unpleasant, like especially when you're dealing with depression and anxiety and things like that. And things like wearing long sleeves or putting your hair up in a hat, things like that can be really helpful too, because you just, you get touched out sometimes, right? And if people can actually touch your skin, that's more stimulating than if you feel it like through a shirt, for example, or through a hoodie. Um, so just thinking about basically like sensory insulation techniques, I think could be really beneficial. Um, the other thing I would think about, why do I always have two ideas? I don't know. It's just my brain, I guess. Changes of environment can help a lot too. Now I know, I don't know where you live, you know, here it's like five degrees today. So it's when you have little kids, it's hard to get out during the winter. Sometimes I know. Um, but just getting in, in different places can be really refreshing for you and it can help the kids a lot too, because then they have novelty and they might be a little more willing to like explore or be independent and not just need you all the time. I feel like that was a short answer. Um, I'm still trying to figure out parenting too. Parenting is hard. I wish I could tell you more. Maybe I'll come back to that one next time and, and see if I can come up with some more ideas. Last two questions. Ah, shoot. Really quick. Sorry. Phone went to sleep. Um, Vicki Kent wants to know what keeps me and others as well from being able to cry at appropriate times. So crying, crying is a process similar to falling asleep or like honestly peeing in that it's a, it's something that happens automatically when the conditions are, are right, but it's something that you basically cannot force. So if you've ever tried to make yourself cry, like I just need to cry and you try to like squeeze it out. And I know like actors can do that, but I it, I don't think it's the same. I'm not an actor, so I don't know. Um, it's kind of like when you try to force yourself to go to sleep and you're laying there like sleep, sleep, sleep. Or if someone has like shy bladder syndrome and can't pee in a public restroom and they try to like force it out, it's you, you can't. And the harder you try, the more constricted the process becomes. So crying is a combination of obviously the emotions need to be present um, that that stimulate the desire to cry in the first place. But also some amount of physical relaxation needs to be present. Actually, I have a perfect example of this that hopefully I can share without crying. Although I guess it'd be being a good role model if I did, right? Um, I actually cried last night for the first time in a while because my daughter yesterday morning made me what she called the, her, the daddy headband. Um, she calls it a headband. I think she underestimated my head circumference because it's really more of a crown than a headband. Um, but she wanted me to wear this at work all day. And so I kind of snapped some random pictures of me doing work-related things wearing the daddy headband. 
And I knew she was, you know, she told me wear it all day. So I knew I was supposed to be wearing it when I came home. And I had so much, I was trying to get out the door on time. There was so much stuff. I was, I had it in my hand. I set it down. I did some other stuff. I came halfway home and I realized I was a bad man at work. And the second I walked in the door, she runs up to me. She goes, daddy, are you wearing the, of course I wasn't. She looks at me and she goes, no. And just, I could just see the disappointment on her face. I felt awful. And I wanted to cry in that moment, but I don't know exactly what was stopping me. Probably the tension. I was still really tense from work. And I was like mad at myself. It's hard to cry when you're mad. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. I had a lot of tension built up and that tension prevented me from crying. So for like, I felt myself sitting on those tears for like four hours. I could just feel it, but they weren't coming. It's finally like after the kids went to bed and after I'd kind of decompressed a little bit from like, I was also frustrated about some of the financial stuff I just talked about. Once the tension left my system, that's when the tears came. So it's often, it's less about thing that you can make yourself do and more like a thing that will happen if you remove the barriers that are present um that are stopping it from happening i was kind of i hope that made sense that was sure i spent more time talking about the daddy headband than how to cry i know um yeah but it's really about trying to figure out what are you doing to stop it and then stop doing the thing that stops it rather than doing a thing to start it i hope that made sense Last question for today. Emily Farley wants to know, what are your thoughts on polyvagal theory and parts work? Um, those are two different questions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give quick answers to them for now. Polyvagal theory is something that I think does make a lot of sense to me. So just really, really generally speaking, for people who aren't familiar with it, um, Dan Siegel's probably like the main guy I would recommend if you want to look into it. But polyvagal theory essentially posits that there's a pretty strong relationship between like mental health and emotional functioning and the autonomic nervous system. And so actually a lot of things I talk about on this channel, in fact, even some of the things I was talking about earlier today, when we talk about the role of the nervous system in dissociation, fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses, things like that. Um, essentially all posit that, you know, our brain and our bodies are connected. That part's not a theory. We know that's true. And that there's essentially constant inform information flowing between your mind and your nervous system, which affects your nervous system and your mind. So it's like this constant two-way street, basically. Um, I'm a big believer in polyvagal theory. Uh, I, I use it a lot. I use it probably every day to some degree. I think it's incredibly useful. I'll probably do more long content on, content on it down the road. Um, parts work. So I don't have a ton of exposure to parts work. I know about IFS or internal family systems, which is the idea that we, that we have essentially different aged versions of ourselves that are not, they're not alters like dissociative identity disorder people inside ourselves, but that they're just kind of remnants of thoughts and feelings during certain developmental stages, especially if there was wounding or trauma and that those parts of ourselves still kind of are in control, like at times when something triggers them. Um, I'm not trained in IFS or any forms of parts work. I've actually never worked with someone who is either. So professional side of things, I'm going to say I don't have super strong feelings about it either way. I have worked with several people like clients or patients who have done parts work. Um, some have told me that it was great and life-changing. I've had a few that were lukewarm on it. I, I know I had at least one who said like it was awful and actually felt that it traumatized her. Um, 
So anecdotally, what I've seen, and that's yeah, that's probably like seven people. It's not a large, not a large sample size. Anecdotally, what I've seen is kind of all over the board. So I'm gonna say it's probably a disappointing answer. I'm gonna say I don't have super strong feelings on parts work yet, and it's something I would want to do a little more independent research on before I come out really strong for or against it, for that matter. That's all the questions we had for this week. As always, thank you to our Ultra supporters for submitting them. If you'd like to be a part of this process and ask questions every week that I cover on these videos, I'd love it if you'd consider becoming an Ultra supporter so that we can work you into our weekly conversation on the community tab. Take care, and I'll see you next time.